I should mention that Logan's family is here. So if you see someone you don't know, ask them, are you Logan's family? <laughs> I won't embarrass them. And also, I, I forgot to mention, today being Mother's Day, very appropriate to mention, Chris and Amy Cowan are going to be going to China to pick up Annabelle. May 16th, they're heading out, so they, they ask for your prayers. So, Two weeks ago, I had you write down your passion, and we had a variety of responses like running, gardening, learning, knitting, music, traveling, writing, NASCAR, uh, chess, and th- there was a whole bunch of them and a wide variety of passions. And our number one passion is Jesus, his mission and his church. It's one thing to have a passion for something, but it's another to be willing to die for it. Would you be willing to die for knitting or die for music or for gardening? Most of the disciples, except for one, John, was martyred for their faith, and they died for Jesus. We're in chapter 30 of the story, which is the next to the last chapter, and I don't know what this series has done for you, but for me, it's been good to get an overview, see how the Bible fits together, and seeing Uh, different people get a better grasp of scripture has been encouraging and for those of you who missed the first 29 chapters i'm going to catch you up right now so sit back put your feet up this will take about four hours (laughs) maybe not but if you don't have the story we have a story table over there you can pick one of those up it says you may purchase one Eh, just just pick one up is fine you know if you want to purchase it that's fine too but it's a good way to get an overview of the bible it's very readable today it's the bottom of the ninth And then next week is the final score. And I'll tell you ahead of time, we win. So next week should be a lot of fun. Last week we talked about how the Apostle Paul was passionate for Jesus. Jesus is worth living for, worth persevering for. And now this week, Jesus is worth dying for. Page 440 in the story, Acts 21, 13, Paul says, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of of the Lord Jesus. Paul is so committed to sharing the good news, he is willing to give his whole life to it and eventually die for it. In this chapter, we come to the end of his life. There's several summaries of his life in this chapter. Now, I got to thinking, I've done hundreds of funerals, literally, and in all of them, there is some kind of a summary of the deceased person's life, some kind of obituary. And I often wonder, what would summarize my life? And what do I want printed in my obituary? What do I want said at my funeral? In the last verse of the book of Acts, it says, He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's pretty much a summary of his life. And if there's one word that would be his passion, it would be the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It consumes his waking hours. It's what moves him and sustains him, even when there's hardship and conflict. So this is his vocation. By the way, what's the greatest vocation? Being a doctor, saving lives, or nurses... Uh, Maybe it's a teacher that teaches young people. Uh, How about a farmer that feeds the world? Or a judge that upholds the law? Or a politician that breaks the law? (laughs) The humor today is very subdued. It's almost non-humorous. But anyway, would it be a firefighter or a policeman? You know, first responders, is that the most important vocation? Or is it the military? If you go by money and pay, sports and entertainment are the most important vocations. But I would contend, in all honesty and all humility that I have the highest vocation on earth. There is nothing more important than what I do. I would also contend that you also have the highest vocation on earth. There's two definitions of vocation. One is your job, your profession, but the deeper and the original meaning of vocation is your calling. One dictionary definition talks about, calls it a strong feeling of being destined or called to undertake a specific type of work, especially being chosen by God. 
And there's nothing more important than what you've been called to. You and I have been called to be people, to help people become all that they originally intended to be, going way back to the garden, and that is to be in perfect fellowship in a loving and obedient relationship with God, which now happens through Jesus Christ. That's your vocation. Mom, your calling is to bring your family into a loving and fruitful and faithful relationship with Jesus Christ. Dad, same thing. It's all of us. Our mission is to be good news and share good news. That's our vocation. Your job, it's just a job. Now that job can be part of your calling and part of your ministry, but our vocation and calling is sharing and being the gospel. Acts 20, Paul says, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. He summarizes his ministry. You know what I've done. You've seen my life. I've not hesitated to share the good news. And now he's not sure how long he has to live. This aging man is coming to the end of his life and eventually will be executed. It is the bottom of the ninth. What do you say when you're coming to the end? With a finish line in sight, what would be your last words? I found a website with some famous last words. Lady Nancy Astor died in 1964 when she woke briefly during her last illness and found all her family around her bedside. She said, am I dying or is this my birthday? Maybe both. Guy Claudel died in 1955. His last words, Doctor, so you think it could have been the sausage? Bing Crosby's final words, That was a great game of golf, fellas, and died. One man, as he was going to bed, said, Good night, my darling. See you in the morning. He didn't. Thomas Jefferson's my favorite one. His final words were, Is it the fourth? He actually died July 4th, 1826, exactly 50 years to the day after signing the Declaration of Independence. Is it the fourth? P.T. Barnum died in 1891. His last words, how are the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? The final words spoken by Napoleon, Josephine. In 2 Timothy, we have Paul's last words, at least his last written words. He's writing to his protege. The torch is being passed on to Timothy. And also by extension, the torch is passed on to us. We are to take up the mantle and become heralds of the gospel. So what are Paul's final words to us? What's his encouragement for we who will carry out the mission that he started? 2 Timothy 3, verse 10, starting verse 10, page 457, says, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, the summary of his life, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. You know about my teaching, Timothy, my life, my purpose, how I was single-minded. I lived by faith and love. I endured persecution. It sounded like it's going to get worse. And Timothy, don't bail. His first word, keep enduring. Continue in what you've learned and become convinced of. Persecutions are going to come. If you live for Jesus, there will be some hard times. At work, you may be asked to do some things that you cannot do, and it hurts your chance for promotion. At school, you may be made fun of. You might be mocked. Even at home, you may feign some resistance or maybe apathy. And when those trials come, you keep on. Acts 20, he says, My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task. 
that the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. My aim is to finish the race. I'm not a runner. Don't ever hope or plan to be a runner. But we have some runners in our church. They're crazy, but uh, we have runners. And I understand from what I hear that it is common for long-distance runners and athletes in any endurance sport to hit the wall as they push themselves past, past a certain level. And here's how the long-distance runner Dick Beardsley described it in running a marathon and hitting the wall. He says, It felt like an elephant had jumped out of a tree onto my shoulders and making me carry it the rest of the way in. Hitting the wall is a very real physical condition. Carbohydrates and hydration are diminished. The body burns out of energy and becomes so tired it just can't move forward. The day before the Boston Marathon, an article in Harvard Health predicted what would happen to thousands of runners. Said everyone's going to start the race, they'll all be excited, but up to 40% of these optimistic and determined souls will slam into a sudden sensation of overwhelming, can't-do-this fatigue before they get the chance to experience the glory of crossing the finish line. Moms, you ever feel like that? I can't do this anymore. What's true physically is also true in life and true spiritually. Sometimes you just hit a wall, you feel like an elephant has jumped onto your back, and you hit that, I can't do this anymore fatigue, you hit the wall and want to quit. I've experienced it several times. And Paul tells Timothy, I finished the race, I carried the elephant. I don't know what your elephant is, but you're probably carrying one, and it's heavy. Going on, he says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because of you know those from whom you learned it. And then he says, And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Second word from a dying man, keep reading, keep learning. Some had abandoned the truth. Some had fallen away from it and shipwrecked their faith. But as for you, you continue in what you'll learn. Now, it says first, Timothy had learned it from infancy which means he learned it from mom. Actually, technically, or uh, specifically, his mother and his grandmother at home. How many of you learned your faith from your mom? Raise your vast majority. And then later he learned it from Paul, and Paul reminds him, now you've got to keep, keep it burning in you. The Bible is God-breathed. In other words, it's inspired by God. Verse 16, it's useful. I heard one preacher say that all, if all Scripture is useful, then the Christian life without Scripture is useless. The Bible will make you wise, it will be your guide, it will make you strong, it will encourage you. Do not give up on the Bible after we get through this story. Go back to it over and over, feed on it, chew on it. Right now, the best thing I'm doing spiritually, my own personal life, is I'm reading Paul's letters, and they just feed me, they give me hope and encouragement, they give me direction. Sometimes he rebukes, sometimes he corrects, sometimes he gives comfort, it teaches about righteousness. Keep reading. One of the reasons the Jews have maintained their identity all through these centuries because of their commitment to the scriptures, to the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures. They're a people of the book. I heard this story about Judaism. So when a young man fell in love and wanted to marry a young woman, in order to ascertain whether or not he was worthy of their daughter, the custom was that her family would give this prospective wannabe groom a test of his knowledge of the Tanakh, the Bible, just to see if He was deserving of their daughter, of the bride. And the more desirable the girl was, the more beautiful, the more intelligent she was, the more wealth her family had, you know, stuff like that, the higher the score had to be on the Tanakh, kind of a Jewish Jeopardy type of thing. 
So the better you are with the Bible, the better woman you'll get. Hear that, guys? Okay? And it's the only education system where if you pass the test, you actually lose your bachelor's degree. <laughs> I tell you, bad. Get it? All right. But keep reading. I wanted to say at my funeral, Mark Weber kept reading. He kept growing. He kept learning. He finished well. Going on. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Now, I want you to see that verse. There are people all around us today that are rewriting the gospel to make it fit what we like and what we think. Self-professed Christians and make the Bible to say what they want it to say. And they say, well, I believe this and give some stupid theology that has nothing to do with the truth and it's rampant today. Just be right. And Paul predicted it. He says, they will turn their ears away from the truth, turn aside to miss, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of evangelists, discharge all the duties of your gospel. In other words, you keep preaching truth. It's a mistake to think that preaching is just for preachers. We're all preachers, and Paul passes the baton to all of us. Jesus looked at his followers and said, you will be my witnesses. We had a young lady come to orientation um, last year, and I always ask in class, you know, why did you start coming to church here? And I'd never heard this one before. She said she mentioned Jesus last Christmas to her grade school-age boy, and he asked, who's Jesus? shocked her her own kid didn't know jesus and, and that's the the culture we're in that's where we're headed most people in mount pulaski do not know who jesus is they don't most of your neighbors do not know who jesus is now some think they do and they know the name of jesus but most have created some image of jesus that really has little to do with what it says in god's word of who he really is you know again we need the bible we need to keep reading and keep preaching truth I want you to think of two images of the church this morning. One is what you see right here. You know, just look around. Look at, look at the people. Look at your neighbor. You know, give them a smile, whatever. Uh, this is the church gathered. And we do this, obviously, pretty regularly, worshiping, praising God, hearing the word. That's the first picture of the church, and that's good. The second picture of the church, I want you to see, is a map. Uh, we have people here from Lincoln, Bloomington, Springfield, Chestnut, Lake Fork, Cornland. It's the church scattered. And if all we are is the church gathered, we really become like unused sponges. We just soak and soak and soak. We sit, we soak, and eventually we get sour. We have to proclaim the word. We're all preachers. Wherever Paul went, he preached, and he started a revival or a riot, and sometimes both, because the word is powerful. He saw preaching the word as the answer to societal problems. He saw it the answer to personal problems. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul turned the world upside down just by preaching. Verse 6, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. A drink offering was a symbolic pouring out of a cup of wine in honor of a Roman god, and Paul borrows from that image and describes his life being poured out for God. So the fourth, fourth last word of a dying man 
keep pouring or keep dying is what it is. Die to yourself. A newlywed couple was having severe problems and they were just in an impasse. They could not solve, they, they could not resolve it. And finally the wife came up with a solution. She said, let's just both pray that one of us dies and then I'll go live with mom. <laughs> she actually did have the solution. One of them needs to die. And if you're going to follow Christ, you have to die. Paul, Jesus is very clear about that. Now, the Roman emperor at this time was probably Nero. And both Paul and Nero lived in Rome at the same time. Nero was a young, flamboyant leader. The rich and the powerful bowed down to him. Paul was old, kind of odd, religious fanatic. And while Paul was old and suffering in prison, Nero was living the high life in the palace. And if you were going to ask at that time, who would have the most impact in world history, Nero or Paul? Nero, of course. The palace is always more important than the prison. Unless you're Bonhoeffer or Mandela or Colson or any number of people. Nero was married to a woman named Papea Sabina, a beautiful blonde woman who took baths daily in milk to soften her skin. And in a strange turn of fate, she died at age 30 when she became lactose intolerant. I'm just kidding, okay? <laughs> yeah, boy, what we learned in church. I got to write that one down. I didn't know that, you know. Well, you didn't learn that in church, okay? But she did bathe in milk. Her servants would dry her with swan feathers and then massage her hands and feet with the mucus of crocodiles. Why? Because Nero likes soft skin. I don't know how they found out that mucus of crocodiles made skin soft, skin soft, but Nero gets what Nero wants. When he was 25 years of age, he constructed a monument 120 feet tall with his image on the top. Paul, on the other hand, did not have a beautiful wife. He had no wife that we know of. He was described as small in stature, bull-legged. His eyebrows went all the way across. He had a larger-than-normal nose. I mean, sound like Danny DeVito to me. And, and at least 195 scars on his back. Even though Paul's in prison... He's confident. He will wear a crown, a better crown than Nero has. And he will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. If we keep pouring ourselves out as a drink offering, no matter how hard or frustrating or discouraging, we can know there's a reward. Paul said, for me to live as Christ, to die is better. It's gain. So while Paul's on the way to execution, Nero's on top of the world. Nero's hot, Paul's not. Nero's a hero, Paul is a zero. Now I have a question. Do you want to be more like Nero or more like Paul? Nero built a city and named it after himself, Neuropolis. Would you like a city named after you? Paul built no cities. He planted the gospel in cities. Nero built an enormous statue of himself and placed it where all could see. Paul built no statue to himself. He built churches, and those churches spread throughout the world for all to see. Nero went to Greece to participate in the Olympic Games, and of course, he always won. You dare not beat the emperor. So Nero received the Olympic crown. Paul finished the race and looked forward to gaining a crown of righteousness. Four years after the death of Paul, Nero was 29 years old. He was despondent, distraught, paranoid, and lonely. His second wife murdered his first wife, and then Nero killed his second wife and her unborn child with an angry kick into a pregnant stomach. Eventually, at the age of 29, he committed suicide. Today, you will find no cathedrals built to Nero. 
You don't have to go very far to find a church or some edifice dedicated to the Apostle Paul. I've never read anything written by Nero, but I have meditated for hours on the words that Paul wrote. I don't know of anyone who I would rather read for devotional purposes. He's my favorite author. I know some guys named Paul. My best friend when I was growing up was named Paul. I know some women named Pauline. I don't know of anyone named Nero. I've heard of some dogs named Nero. So people name their sons after Paul, they name their dogs after Nero. You want to be a Nero? See, most people do. That's the kicker here. Rich, powerful, popular, beautiful wife, he had it all. And that's what most people want. He was a legend. But Paul left a legacy. Mom, today, the reason we honor you, you've left a legacy. And that's what Paul did, the most influential Christian of all time. Nero was on the path to greatness. Paul was on the path to defeat. But Paul ended up great, and Nero defeated. Early in his life, Paul said, I want to fight the good fight. I want to run the race. And now at the end of his life, he can finally say, I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. He lived for Jesus, and he died for Jesus. It's one thing to be passionate. It's another thing to be willing to die for your passion. Now, we're going to celebrate communion this morning. And, of course, at the heart of the communion service is death. The remembrance that Jesus died for his passion, which is us, the world. And what he did for us, he asked us to do, be willing to die for him. So may these emblems be a reminder of his death and yours. Let's pray. Father, we come today on a day where we remember mothers, but a day where we especially remember your son and the sacrifice that he gave for us. And Lord, that he asked us to die for him. And I pray, Lord, you'll give us the courage and the strength to die for Christ as Paul did. May our vocation be to preach the gospel, share the word. Thank you so much for your love for us. And we do this in Jesus' name. Amen.